I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be discussing vulture capitalism, pandemic profiteering, and more generally, the hijacking of America's pandemic response with longtime journalist Nina Burley. Now, Nina is the author of a number of books, but the focus of our conversation is going to be her latest, Virus, Vaccinations, the CDC, and the hijacking of America's response to the pandemic. In addition, we'll also discuss some of Nina's earlier writings on various subjects, as well as an article she wrote that was published shortly after this episode was recorded, in which she investigated the Michigan militia case. That'll be near the end of our conversation, where we have a short discussion about the meaning of freedom in America and the ways in which we conceptualize freedom in an age of surveillance capitalism. All that and more on this edition of Parallax Views. And with that being said, let's get right to the conversation with Nina Burley, author of Virus, Vaccinations, the CDC, and the Hijacking of America's Response to the Pandemic. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. Before we continue our conversation on this edition of Parallax Views, I want to notify California listeners of the program about one of our sponsors, the Therapy Practice of Alexander Yu. Yu is an experienced teletherapist since 2008, and he goes by the motto, Flow, adapt, change, as Lao Tzu would say. And he wants to accompany you on your journey of self-improvement. Now, again, this applies to California listeners of the program. Alexander is a licensed psychotherapist and teletherapist. And if you'd like his services, then please contact him at Alexander U. That's Alexander U. Y. O. O. Dot com. And he can be reached by email at therapy at Alexander U. Dot com or by phone at 323-834-9828. That's 323- 8349828 This is only available once again to my California listeners 
but if you need anything related to therapy needs, please be sure to contact our sponsor, Alexander Yu. Welcome to Parallax Views, journalist Nina Burley. Uh, a lot of people say Burley, but it's Burley, folks. And you're the author of the book Virus Vaccinate Virus, the vaccinations, the CDC, and the hijacking of America's response to the pandemic. Welcome to the show, Nina Burley. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Nina, the first question I wanted to ask you, you've written about a lot of different topics over the years, uh, including the politics of biblical archaeology in Israel, uh, including the Amanda Knox trial and the media sort of response to that trial. And now you've written about the uh, pandemic and how it was handled. Is there a theme that may relate all of those things together? Because I, I can see sort of elements in, for instance, uh, The Fatal Gift of Beauty, the Amanda Knox book, that really ring true today, especially in our moment of a you know, post-truth, as they say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, well, I, um, you know, I didn't start off writing books with this kind of a theme, or I didn't recognize that I was actually following a theme, but now I do see that all of the books, even the first one, which is about the, um, this enduring uh, CIA-connected Cold War murder, um, all of them have, uh, have to do with, the tension between um, superstition or um, the need for for uh, faith in this era of um, you know science and materialism and this, this secular time that we live in. So so all of all of the books have to do with this this push and pull. Um, and um, obviously, the pandemic. And the, the the vaccinations, the creation of and the response to the vaccinations, um, is just you know just one of the most extreme examples of that. But yes, you're right. In the Amanda Knox case, it was, you know, you either believed in the DNA or you didn't. You either believed in the in the haphazard um, uh, CSI that had been done by the Italian cops on the scene, or you you didn't, and you either believed in witches, as the prosecutor did, or you didn't. And so there was this, you know, um, this kind of tension again between, um, you know, superstition or local traditions, prejudice, and the, you know, what the science showed on that scene. And of course, it showed that Amanda Knox and her boyfriend were not in that room. Um, all the evidence showed that the third man whose name everyone forgets was the murderer. And, um, you know, I, I guess I first got interested in this when I was writing about that CIA connected murder uh, case, which is, you know, anybody interested can just Google Mary Meyer, M-E-Y-E-R, and the murder of Mary Meyer is one of these enduring, um, you know, probably the first most enduring kind of CIA conspiracy theory um, you know, I mean, I guess following JFK, the JFK assassination, I mean, she was murdered 10 days after the Warren Commission report came out. And, um, and, you know, she had done acid with Timothy Leary and had been, you know, part of the, the early counterculture, early, 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 late 50s, early 60s. Wasn't so she a, a lover of, of, um, of JFK? Yes. Or, okay. yes, 
he was, she had known him since, you know, high school, prep school. They were in the same circles their entire lives. And he had a kind of an obsession with her and, and, and kind of hung around with her a lot more than, you know, I mean, he was, he had many, many, many girlfriends or sex partners, but she was, she was somebody he ha- actually had in his life a lot. And, um, and the murder, uh, ex- you know, execution style or appearing to be execution style has provoked, you know, now 60, 50, 60 years on, um, you know, a lot of conspiracy theories that won't die down. And then, and then, as you mentioned, the Israel, uh, the biblical archaeology, forged biblical archaeology uh, project, which is absolutely fascinating to me. Um, the, you know, I plunged into this world of people who are people of faith who desperately want proof of faith material proof of faith because they live in this secular materialistic science world. And so these forgers were kind of giving that to them. And in addition, by, you know, altering these genuinely old archeological objects that are pulled out of the ground in the Holy land or, or the greater Syro Palestinian area, whatever you want to call it. Um, they were altering them with inscriptions to make them look like they related to biblical Kings to, you know, turning them into Judaica when they were actually connected to some other things. And, uh, so proof for faith, but again, in that case, it also had a lot to do with religious national politics and the borders of Israel the expanse, the expansive borders of Israel, and that they needed this proof on the ground um, to to claim, lay claim, you know, prove their land claims. So anyway, that's a really long answer to your question, but um, you know, I just think it's the premier question of our time. I mean, climate change, everything we, you know, everything that we're dealing with has to do with this this push between pull between what the data shows, what the science shows, what people. Um, you know, people who understand genetics know about vaccines and how to fight cancers and how to fight viruses. And they speak a foreign language to the, you know, to the average person. So you either have to trust them because you can't school yourself in it, or you have to find communicators who can communicate it, translate it in a way that persuades people to trust it. And, you know, that's the big challenge of our times in journalism. Obviously, that's a huge challenge. And we've in fact, we've gone the opposite direction since in the Trump years. We've gone not, you know, not just people not trusting science and the language of science, but not trusting anything that people put in the news. Um, You know, half the country thinks I make things up, I'm sure, you know, or, or a significant percentage of uh, Americans think that journalists just make it up. And uh, and that's very destabilizing, obviously, we know that. That's a whole other conversation. So what's interesting for me is I feel like a lot of your work also deals with, um, you know, the machinations of money and power. And one thing I wanted to get into with you, because I know you've mentioned it in a few articles, is that you can see parallels uh, between uh, the COVID pandemic response, and also the failures of the Iraq war. And I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit, because you were around for the Iraq war reporting on that as well. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, the Iraq war, I think now is generally understood to have been a great folly um, and built on lies. There is no question that it was built on lies. Um 
But unlike the Brits who had their Chilcot inquiry and came up with the report that named the names, identified the lies, named the names of the people who went along with or produced those lies, Washington has never produced such a report. And this was the source of the war. I mean, this started here the, you know, the, the, the Bush administration ginned up uh, the, the war cries and, um, and everyone went along with it. And the reason that there hasn't been any accountability is that I think, or this is what I'm told anyway, from the Washington, Washingtonians who remain down there, is that there were too many people on all sides complicit in this. And so nobody's going to get, nobody's going to get any traction. Nobody would get any traction trying to uh, open that as an inquiry and, and start figuring out what happened and trailing, tracing the lies, the sources of the lies and holding people accountable. I mean, the closest you came to that was the Valerie Plame, um, Joe Wilson situation where they, they were horrendously harassed for telling the truth. And then they were able to fight back against that. And, um, and you do have a record of, you know, um, what's his name? Scooter Libby going to jail until he was pardoned, of course. So nobody ever pays really the price for it. And um, so that is the Iraq war. And now here we are. Well, I mean, I guess you could also talk about the 2008 financial crash in the same way. Um, again, you know, the, in, the impulse to, to dig into what caused that and how it played out and who benefited and how that was a massive transfer of wealth from the middle class to the upper is not something that's being discussed or, you know, I mean, investigated. You know, Elizabeth Warren did a little bit on it or talked about it. Some of those people talked about it on, in, you know, in the halls of power, but nobody's going to start an inquiry into that. And, um, do you and then, real, real quick, if you could, and I didn't mean to interrupt you. Do you think there's a fear that, you know, looking into uh, the reasons for the Iraq War and the lies that were told, or the lies about the 08 financial crisis? Do you think there's a fear that that could undermine faith in our institutions as well? Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't think that's the motive. Yeah. Yes, I do think that for for some people, I bet that is the motive because, and I've discussed it with enough people, especially the idea of the Chilcot report to know uh, if that that kind of discussion goes on, but certainly um, there probably is that fear. But the problem with that is, well, the Iraq war and the financial crisis, the wastage, of trillions of dollars in Afghanistan, the wastage of trillions of dollars on a war in Iraq that wasn't necessary, and this transfer of wealth that happened with the collapse of the um, economy is, um, is not something that people want to talk about, but it is something that has, that underpinned the rise of fascism. I mean, what's happened is, we need a revolution to stop this insane wastage of money and the lies that put American kids in Iraq and the money that's been blown on weapons 
that are, you know, that money, that money, that Afghanistan money didn't go to Afghanistan. Those trillions of dollars have gone to people like Elliot Broidy. I'm not, he wasn't involved in Afghanistan as far as I know, but that type of person, you know, the middlemen who now have hundreds of millions of dollars stashed away and they live in gated, you know, gated mansions and they have new yachts, you know, a whole new class of people are in, were enriched by the Afghanistan, the decades of Afghanistan, and then of course the Iraq war. Um, and, you know, that's what that's what's going on there. So you have American people, even without the council, a Chilcot report, um, even without the, uh, the government saying, we're going to look into this. You have American people, they're not stupid. They understand what was going on to some extent. They also are, you know, being blindsided with conspiracy thinking and, you know, social media uh, influence campaigns and so on. But at the very bottom, most people understand that this was a corrupt thing that happened and that they've been played for fools. And, um, and you know, they're angry about it. And, and, and the anger is coming out. And I think partly in this, um, you know, Trump took advantage of that anger and focused it on brown people and Mexicans coming across the border and, and, you know, focused in, you know, classic fascist activity, you know, divide and, um, and played white identity politics. And so that's your, that's your revolution. It's the one six revolution of fascism when there should have been a revolution against, you know, a united stand by some leaders saying, we need to understand why this money was wasted. We need to understand why there, why people got away with lies. Why did Colin Powell get stand in front of the UN and lie? Who made up that lie? Hold people accountable. And we don't do that. We don't do that. We didn't do it with Vietnam so much, right? Um, it's so in some ways it's an American tradition not to, and it doesn't always have to do with the government. It has to do with America, the American way. You don't want to do that kind of navel gazing. And also it's the capitalism. It's all about, you know, let's move forward and, and, um, you know, produce, produce, produce. And so, um, profits, production. So nobody, you know, it's, it's, it's two things. It's the reluctance of the government to, to look into itself. It's the reluctance of people to stand up as leaders and demand that for their own reasons. And then it's just this kind of American, I, I mean, it, incredibly, Hannah Arendt said, Americans are passive. In one of her books, when, when we should write about America, Americans are passive. And I, and when you first read that, you think that's not true at all. Like we're not passive. Are you kidding? We're aggressive. We're aggro. But if you think about it, and again, you know, on second thought, it is true. We're passive. You know, half the people don't vote. Um, more than half, right? People aren't voting. Um, there is a passivity, and and that's that's kind of sad. But um, so yeah, and and now we get to you know this disaster of 2020 that was, um, should have been avoided. Um, America is wealthy. It's filled with, um, you know, top scientists. It's filled with um, data crunching machines like Johns Hopkins and, you know, the, the public, public health experts who knew what to do. And in an administration that was not focused on, not just focused on, um, getting uh, Trump reelected, 
but also that respected science and had allies in the science world, um, you would have had, I think, the leaders that you needed. You could have had the leaders that would have stood up in the White House, in Washington, at the top, and said to the country, you're wearing masks, and we're shutting this place down, and this is what the science tells us to do. And if, yes, they made the mistake early on with the masks, saying, no, you don't need the masks, which, yes, that did, that's the problem. It was whose fault, and it was CDC. They just didn't, they didn't know. They didn't want people to, to hoard those things. They didn't know that they were, that it was airborne. They didn't fully understand what the, um, you know, remember we were all buying hand sanitizer when it really was just air. You're breathing it. You know, they fit, once they figured that out, I think if you had a science respecting administration like the Biden administration, which I think it is, I think Ron Klain and those people stand up for science, that they would have gotten in front of it and said, okay, you know, this is what we have to do. Everybody pull together and we're going to throw the full weight of the federal government behind this, you know, and we're going to make sure that there are masks for everybody. And we're going to make sure that there are tests for everybody and that everybody's getting tested all the time. Now, again, you're not going to be Korea. One of the things that we understand from what happened is that places like, you know, these, some of these Asian countries, Korea is perfect example. I mean, they, their people are community oriented. They're not as individualistic as we are. Their culture is community oriented. So they do things for the good of everyone in a way that we don't really haven't been doing and, and don't really do. And so, especially not, you know, I mean, we maybe did it in World War II. And that's the last time that, that you could say that Americans acted like that. Um, you know, rationing and the war effort and so on. And, you know, I, you could imagine that a, pro, that a good leader, good leaders would have stood up at the beginning of this and said, even with those stumbles related to the, the bad test and the, the masks, that if you were science uh, respecting, you would have been able to be leaders on this and lead from the point of view that the science is, you know, does have the answers, doesn't maybe always have the answers instantly, but we have great science and we have this amazing um, new ability to um, identify, you know, exactly what this pathogen is within like 10 days. They knew in 10 days after the Chinese gave them the code, the genetic, uh, what do you call it? The, the, the framework, the, the uh, genetic uh, footprint of the virus they knew within within 10 days here in the US in, in, in NIH, they had the little mRNA um, design that, that, that is the basis of the mRNA vaccines within like three days or you know 10 days of, the, of after the Chinese released that information. And, and that is something that, um, you know, we're jumping ahead because now I'm talking about the vaccines, but that is something that is an absolute milestone in medicine. It's only been 200 and some years, 250 years since the cowpox was the only, um, you know, since the, they invented the vaccine and the vaccine was, it's that vaccine comes from the word vaca, which is the word for cow because cowpox was a, was a weakened form of smallpox. And they, it's only been 200 some years since we had that other, before that we were 
utterly helpless as a species against everything. You know, we didn't have any idea. And even after you have the cowpox vaccine in the late 1700s, it would be another 75 years or 70 years before you had Pasteur and those guys with the, with the enough, you know, the, the lenses ground up enough so that you could, they started to understand, oh wait, there's this, there are these things, there are these tiny things, right? And that's what it is. Everybody who died of cholera has this tiny shaped thing in their bodies. And here's what the tuberculosis looks like. And here's what rabies looks like. And only then did they start to see what it was and then, you know, fast forward to now, where not only do we see, we know exactly what it's made of, and we can make synthetic, a synthetic um, substance that looks like it to fight it off in our bodies. We're, we're talking to specifically here, too, about the mRNA vaccine, right? I'm talking about the mRNA. I'm not talking about Sputnik or J&J. You know, I mean, J&J &J and, and, you know, those, what do they call them? The, the uh, adenovirus um, uh, the, the adenovirus uh, vaccines where they've grafted, they graft things onto those viruses. Um, those are still using these sort of na natural biological um, substances, right? The adenovirus is a, a harmless cold virus. And then they then are grafting on the, um, the coronavirus shape so that the body will recognize that and, and reject and, and create antibodies for it. Um, but the mRNA is is really uh, a milestone. It's a platform revolutionary delivering to the body ways that the body can fight back. And, and you know, it had been something that they've been working on for maybe 15 years already before this pandemic started. Um, some of these you know, scientists and the companies have been experimenting with things, but they were focused on very expensive, um, very expensive specific tumor fighting cancer drugs. And the, the reason is, um, of course, not altruistic entirely, but they can make more money off these expensive cancer drugs, a lot more money, right? It's a lot, there's a lot more lucrative to make something that co costs 30,000 a week, right? Which is some, what some of these can't specialized tumor fighting things are to make mass produce a vaccine that's only gonna be used once. I mean, that's like a gift that they're giving us. And that's why they needed, you know, the Trump, the thing the Trump administration did right was they threw money at, the, at those pharma people. I mean, big pharma ran it. They went, they came into the White House and they said, you know, we're going to give the money to these guys. And, and, um, and you know, that, that worked. That's, that's why we have, you know, I traveled outside the country uh, the last month and a half. And, um, and you know, we, we are, Americans are very, very lucky. We're very spoiled. I mean, some of these other countries do have it, uh, but where I was, there were, I was in Greece and then I was in Armenia and the people were taking the Sputnik. They had this, this Chinese um, vaccine and those things don't work as well. Um, not at all. I mean, everybody I talked to, the Russians I met, had all, they had all had it. They'd all had COVID. They were young people and had very, very severe cases of it. So, um, but we're lucky. And, and again, we're spoiled. And this is one of the points I make in my book. We're spoiled. We're so spoiled by the vaccines that were um, invented in the, let's say, 50s, 60s, 70s against 
a huge array of childhood infectious diseases, the names of which we can't even pronounce. I don't know how to, I mean, I can say diphtheria, but I wouldn't have been able to say it until I started talking about this. Like that was some, these were diseases that until the 1920s or so, I would say every child was um, susceptible to horrible, horrible suffering and death. Nobody got to adulthood. I don't think in those years without knowing somebody who died of an infectious disease or who had a traumatic um, scare with one or had witnessed a sibling die or witnessed a sibling suffering and many parents would lose children. It was common. And now all these people running around going, I don't want to get vaxxed, Mac mandates, I'm going to court to stop this mandate. Those people are utterly spoiled. They have no idea. They've forgotten. We've forgotten as a culture, we've forgotten, like, here's what science did for you. This is what the vaccines did for you. And um, they don't even know, you know, (laughs) they don't even know how to say the the names of these diseases. So if I could, I wanted to ask about, it's interesting, since we were talking about uh, Trump and his leadership during the COVID pandemic, You know, I think it's interesting. A lot of people will say, well, the Trump administration was just stupid. And I I almost disagree with that. I I think Trump knew what he was doing. I I mean, he said to Bob Woodward, this thing's a killer. I just I'm not sure the Trump administration really cared. And I think you sort of get at that in the book. There is a lot of vulture capitalism going on in this story. And I want you to speak to that because I found that aspect of the book to be the most fascinating. Thanks. Yeah. Well, when, you know, when the publisher called and asked me to write this book, he wanted a book about the vaccine and the race to the vaccine. And, and this was in, you know, around this time of year last year. So the vaccine was just about to be uh, finished and, and announced. Um, and I said, yeah, I'll do it. But you got to let me write about what they did to the CDC and the politicization of the science and the profiteering, because I that's what's got me worked up and I've watched it. We all watched it in real time with our jaws dropping every day further uh, at the, yes, in my view, absolutely callous uh, decision-making. No, it wasn't, it wasn't that they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't care. I would guess that somewhere along the way they did actuarial and said, yeah, they're all going to die and the brown people are going to die in the cities where they're huddled together in the ghettos or, you know, but we're just going to be fine. And, um, you know, let the blue states, let the blue states deal with that. Um, we know that they were doing that. I mean, we have people, witnesses to Kushner and, you know, them, them saying that. So we know that they did that. Um, but more than that, and you mentioned vulture capitalism. So this is a, this was a, um, an administration that, uh, was the tool was put in place to advance the um, an ideology, an extremist capitalist ideology. The MBA ideology. The MBA ideology, but the MBA ideology of now, like the nineteen, you know, that that you know, post Trump comes of age as a businessman in the beginning of the era of Milken and vulture capital and, and 
you know, the nineties, eighties and nineties, he comes of age at that point. He goes broke. He bankrupt, he's bankrupt. He's not one of the successful ones other than the fact that he practices the callous way of not paying his bills and, you know, uh, running his business by filing lawsuits and threatening, but that's more mafia really than just vulture capitalism, although there is a connection. Um, but what they did was they decided as they had been throughout the, the administration, the government is the problem. The regulations are the problem. The taxes are the problem. And they decided this is an opportunity to show that private industry can handle and do the job that FEMA or, you know, that, that, that we should have there, that the agencies might do. We aren't going to activate the agencies. We're not going to activate the um, uh, National Defense Production Act. We're not going to force anybody. God, no, we're not going to force any companies to do anything because, you know, let the market prevail. Let the market prove that it can handle this problem. And of course, what you saw was people like that dude out in California, you know, people rushed into this pigs, this trough and, and money, you know, for, for private people, private industry. And you have people like that guy out in California who was a Silicon Valley mocker who comes in and says, yeah, I can produce you know, for the state of New York, PPE, or um, what was it? Some Something that he had never done before, where I'm gonna bring in, you know, these uh, ventilators, that's what it was. I was gonna bring, he was gonna bring ventilators to the state of New York when that was the way that they were trying to deal with the people who were in the hospital without uh, oxygen. And and the New York, New York state was going by what the, what the White House and Kushner had done. They'd put out a list of vendors and um, and this guy somehow, you know, had gotten himself on the list and he they gave him eighty six million dollars and he didn't do anything because he didn't know how it wasn't going to be able to. And they had to sue him to get it back. And they're still suing. I think that he, they got most of it back. But this was this was the, you know, Game of Thrones or I mean, it was it was like throw the, you know, Trump literally before our eyes telling the governors to compete with each other because price is always an op, an issue. When he said that, price is always an issue to these governors who were trying to deal with this incredible, terrifying situation. And instead of saying, we're going to tell these companies right now that they need to produce and deliver, they botched it completely and they botched it, but they didn't, I shouldn't say they botched it. It worked out exactly as, as it was meant to work out, which was if people are going to die, they're going to die. And, you know, too bad. And um, people who can make money off of this will make money off it. Yay. That's good. And hopefully we can manipulate the CDC and HHS, the message coming out of the, these um, science, especially the CDC, the message coming out of the those agencies so that we look like we're doing a good job because in addition to wanting people to get get rich they also were running to get Trump reelected and so there was incessant politicization as we know and that's been reported and again you know you do have the um the select subcommittee in the house on the pandemic uh, coronavirus crisis 
the handling of it. You have them um, plugging away, you know, trying to, uh, they're subpoenaing um, documents. You know, the Trump administration famously eluded the law on the Public uh, Presidential Records Act. So they were using proton mail and encrypted comms all the time. So a lot of this, there is no track, but they're trying to get material out of the National Archives um, to um, at least find out the, the extent of the politicization and the extent of the profiteering that the White House was engaging in with its pals. And that information may or may not come out of this. I mean, they're going to, in, they're going to release an interim report. I just talked to them the other day. They're going to release an interim report in December. And um, I think they're going to, you know, um, have some more information for us. But the problem is they have no teeth. They can't prosecute these guys. It's, I mean, they won't. You know, they, the best we can hope for is that some more people get named and shamed. Um, but again, you know, they're pretty shameless. Hey, Parallax News listeners. Before we continue the show, I've got a movie that I want to tell you about. Check out the film Tremel by Christopher Jason Bell, available on the Slamdance YouTube channel. The film follows Dale as he lives a solitary life in a small town, his only outlet being conversations with the local pharmacist, Muhammad. As time passes, Dale slowly begins to reveal more of his life and history to Muhammad. Lauded for its empathy, Tremel highlights the forgotten community member in a time when there is no community, and examines what happens when someone's only human connection is a service worker. You can watch over at slamdance.com slash watch slash Tremel or at youtube.com slash slamdance. Check it out, folks. So what's really interesting to me is I think that some of these figures on the sort of right wing of the political spectrum or the even, you know, the fringe that has kind of become the mainstream of the Republican Party, these figures like Peter Till or um, even Steve Bannon, who you quote at the beginning of the book saying, I want to go back to a different time, like, you know, the time of the Tudors, which to me, that that sounds like feudalism. It's where the, they, they sort of try to present themselves as we're turning the Republican Party into the party of the working class. Um, Peter Till and Steve Bannon have both tried to run that line. But in reality, I mean, Steve Bannon is an ex-Goldman Sachs guy. Uh, they don't seem to have any interest in helping the proles. It just seems like uh, a weird mix of eugenics and just social Darwinism on their part. And they're exploiting this idea that they're working class when they're the exact opposite. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's a big mistake to say that, um, sorry, I just got a little information just came across the screen about Moderna and the US government being in a patent fight now about the vaccine. And again, you have the patent, you know, there's Bill Gates involved in this whole issue with the patents, um, maintaining the patents against, you know, this incredible tide of need globally. Uh, that's another problem. And that actually is, again, an all-American capitalism in, in action. Um, but yeah, it's a mistake to, to say, and it's been said from the very beginning, it's a mistake to say that the, the rabble, that the poor put him in office. Um, his people are people who make over 75000 a year. 
um, they're not poor people. I mean, the some you know people who were coming to his rallies, you know, those white folks in Iowa that you see it in that hilarious daily uh, Daily Show video the other day, where they're just they're just as vulgar as can be. But you, you're looking at them and you're like, they they aren't they aren't poor. They're not poor. They are. They're not the you know, I mean, yes, there is the blue collar, right? The coal miners in West Virginia, um, the, um, you know, which just happened in Virginia, the state of Virginia, where you had the, the high school educated women coming over to the uh, Republican side. Um, yeah, they vote against their interests. Yes, they do have an appeal to that, um, uh, that demographic. But I still think that in the end, it's, you know, they represent people who have money and they're there, they are there to maintain that power against the powerless. That's every, it has everything to do with their, their Supreme court picks. It's not about abortion. It's about maintaining power against the powerless. That's why they have Kevin on there and Gorsuch. So they can just vote on these, you know, make sure people can't file class action lawsuits or, you know, force them into arbitration and, you know, everything that keeps the man in control, they are, they are doing. That's what they're behind. Who would you say are the biggest beneficiaries of the pandemic uh, when, when it comes to these sort of vulture capitalists? Well, that's a good question. I mean, it's still coming out. Um, the other or a organization that's looking into that, there are other, the two other organizations that are looking into what happened. So it's not like there is no investigation going on. The GAO government accounting office is looking at how the agencies operated and how they contracted. And then there's something called the PRAC, Pandemic Recovery Accountability Council or Commission. And that's got a bunch of in inspector generals from different agencies led by Michael Horowitz, who famously wrote the, um, the big report, the DOJ report on Trump and Russia, where they deemed that the FBI had not acted inappropriately. Michael Horowitz runs it. And they have released, you know, they're going after some small potatoes, like people who frauded 20 million out of the PP, what is it, the, the, the loan programs, those big loan programs for small businesses. They, there's a lot of fraud. But they also have found out things like, well, the Trump administration handed a contract to some little tiny company out in Herndon, Virginia, you know, right out there in the beltway to handle the loans, the disbursement of these trillions in loans. And they are like not, they're just buddies of somebody and they are not qualified to oversee these giant amounts of money. And what happens when you put people who aren't qualified in charge of something like that? Massive amounts of fraud, massive, like hundreds of millions of dollars. And then you have, you know, the hundreds of millions of dollars in contracts that people like Peter Navarro was steering, <coughs> steering friendly um, business owners to. Um, so, yeah, the names of the scoundrels are still not fully, there isn't like a big scoundrel role. I hope that somebody puts one together. I try to keep up with what the GAO is releasing. I try to keep up with what the PRAC is releasing. And I try to keep up with what the House committee, subcommittee is releasing. I think at some point um, they're going to wrap up their work, like the House. I don't think they're going to, you know, look, the House, they're, the Democrats next year have to start thinking of how much of the time are they, how much time are they going to spend 
um, on this now waning, one hopes, pandemic. They, people don't want to think about it also. That's the other thing. Really, and that's true of the Spanish flu. If you look at the history of the Spanish flu, people just turned away from it. They didn't talk about it. It, it was like this blank piece of time. It was a blank time. And, and people don't want to look back at it. So there's that. Um, oh, there was something else I wanted to tell you, but it'll come back to me about the, um, about the house and the committee. Well, ask me another question. It'll come back to me. Well, I was just going to add, I mean, it's interesting too, because I think we can see this in other areas during the Trump administration. I mean, I, I feel like the whole, um, you know, build the wall thing was about getting contracts to his friends to, you know, build walls yes. and, you know, uh, there That's was that. Or grift off of people who wanted to give money for that. Like Bannon mm -hmm. did, was what was Bannon, what Bannon was doing and was preemptively pardoned for. I mean, the yeah. feds arrested. The I was going to add to that, too. I mean, look at Jared Kushner and the stuff with the UAE. <laughs> no, that's another thing. I mean, never going to be never going to be investigated. Um, you know, I mean, the, the, the lesson of the Trump administration, one of is that for us, you know, people who traffic in or in the truth or facts and, and lawyers who deal with the law is that if you know, the whole framework is so fragile. We never understood how fragile it was. If people decide, like people who have a lot of money, decide not to follow the rules, they get away with it. If you have a trillion dollar sovereign wealth fund like the UAE does, and it's handled by like 19 men, those 19 men can do anything they want. They can shut you, they can... They can take Khashoggi and chop his fingers off that UAE didn't do that. The same with goes for the Saudis. Huge sovereign wealth under control of very small numbers of people. And um, they can do anything. And, and, and you know, Kushner's uh, family business, you know, are they going to feel the pain uh, of, of this? I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that, you know, they used their they used that office to and Trump did, too to, you know, sell buildings in India or condos in India and, and you know, make sure the Kushner um, empire didn't collapse on its, of its own weight. They will not be, I don't think, call, called to account, unfortunately. So there were just two more things I wanted to cover. Another part of your book deals with uh, the mainstreaming of conspiracy theories. And what I find interesting about the whole conspiracy theory discussion is um, in some ways, I feel like the actual conspiracy, if there was one, was the pushing of conspiracy theories. I mean, you, you talk about uh, the Great Reset conspiracy theory in the book, and you, you point towards how it was a figure from the right-wing Heartland Institute that was pushing this. And then we all, you know, if people know about the Council for National Policy, we have mm -hmm. preachers that are pushing politics in the churches. We mm -hmm. have things like Salem Radio, Bolt Radio, um, mm -hmm. Sinclair Broadcasting, Fox News, they're the ones pushing all of this. And, you know, it, it's mm -hmm. to me, it's almost like the real conspiracy or the people manufacturing mm -hmm. and pushing these conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit to that? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm going to have to update my book because uh, it still stands. The stuff that I have in there about the conspiracy theories that were off that were afoot when I wrote the book and finished it in March of this year, but they have become so much more prevalent beyond what I even could have imagined was going to happen, where you have, 
you know, just whole slabs of demography, like not believing that the vaccine is uh, or believing that it's harmful and um, incompletely misinformed with deliberate misinformation. Um, so, you know, a couple of things. I mean, you obviously have the, the social media problem that's that's, you know, makes it easier for people to spew that kind of misinformation. Right. And spread it and the algorithms that love it and that will spread it faster. And um, then you have the bad actors behind it who are, you know, some of whom you've mentioned the CNP, right? They got in there right early on with these fake doctors or they're not fake doctors. They're like radically cracked doctors who are, are they call themselves the frontline doctors. That was the CNP. They organized those guys all the way back in like March, April, May of 2020, because they wanted to help the Trump administration open the economy right when these waves of virus were just washing over America. Remember, he wanted to open. They needed to open. So they needed to agitate for that. And they used this front called the frontline doctors. And they're still running around now. Right. Um, so, so I was going to say really quickly, I mean, Dr. Simone Gold is, is one of the people involved in that. And I think she was one of the big yeah. pushers of the ivermectin stuff. Total. It's like a CNP yeah. operation. <laughs> it is a CNP operation. And OK, so that's this, that's Simone Gold. But then, you know, the the subcommittee, this House subcommittee just subpoenaed her and also Jerome Corsi. Like these names just come up again and again. Jerome Corsi goes all the way back to the Clinton years. Right. With his theories of. Uh, Vince Foster's murder or something. I mean, he's just been around in this world forever. And here he comes up again. And what is he doing? This this frontline doctors are um, linking people to something that he has started where it's like a telehealth company where people can call. It's and I forget what it's called. There's a name and it's connected to the CNP, I mean, connected to the frontline doctors, but it's Jerome Corsi's operation. They can call these doctors and they get, they pay like $60 an hour or $60 a minute or something to talk to them. I know that's a large um, difference, but they pay them, they pay to speak to them and then they get their ivermectin uh, prescription. And (laughs) Jerome Corsi is making bank on this. He's a, I mean, he was Roger Stone's, you know, had to come up until they had a follow, following out with the um, WikiLeaks stuff. I mean, he's a he's a shady character. I think I and think he even pushed uh, the I was going to say, I think he even pushed the swift boat veterans thing about John Kerry. I mean, they keep doing this over and over again. He definitely. Go, yes. he and, and so it's not just they're not you know, what you realize is that it's like they're not just political actors they see this as a way to make money like Steve Bannon with the wall thing. This is hope there's, you know, a sucker born every day. Let's take some money for that wall. Let's get some more red wine from Italy or, you know, get on a, on a yacht with a Chinese billionaire and ha ha left to the left all the way to the bank. They're like, those are the strategists who are uh, supposedly working with the leadership that the Republican Party is serving up the leaders, and you know, I mean, I mean, the takeaway for me in all this, the covering the Trump years, is, you know, I spent most of my career. I started in Chicago and Springfield, and we just love to take down 
corrupt politicians. That's what we did. We would find things out that they did wrong and we would publicize it. And yay, if we got, you know, we got like bagged one. That's what we did. A lot of political reporting had to do with that investigative reporting. And now uh, after the Trump years, I really feel like I almost feel like I, I did not do, I, I feel like we should support good leaders in addition to taking apart the ones who are have their hands in the till, um, that you know, there's a dearth of leaders. There's no leader. There's no people are not stepping up. The good people are not stepping up to take, you know, to take charge. And so what you get is in the vacuum, you know, these 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 uh, scoundrels. What do you? I'm just curious. What do you make of? I mean, I think there's one side of this vaccine conspiracy theory stuff is, you know, I, I would say connected to dark money and, and people like the Mercers, the Cokes, uh, and anti-lockdown stuff and, and whatnot. But um, I think there's also been this issue of, it's not simply an issue of, I, I wouldn't even use the term low information. I think a lot of people have been deliberately misinformed. Um, but there's also, there's people who you would think would know better. I mean, like, uh, Naomi Wolf, I, I feel, has gone really weird when it comes to vaccines. What do you make of this whole sort of uh, side of vaccine denialism that is, you know, not even coming necessarily from the Trump side of things? Yeah, well, there are lots of layers to this, right? So the, the, they're the political bad actors, the chaos agents who just want to see the Biden administration having to deal with a really lasting pandemic and problems not ending, right? So there's political, there's actual like sinister uh, political goal here. Then there are people who um, just distrust science and don't trust, you know, for very, and I write about this in the, in the book a little bit, you know, there, there's, a, there's a history uh, in America of science, Cold War science, whereas Cold War science was pretty scary stuff. They not only made the nuclear bomb, they made bioweapons too. And we know they did. And, you know, people watch Stranger Things. That's the title of the, of the chapter, actually. It's, you know, this is a Stranger Things time, you know, and it's, it's dystopian and there's stuff happening. So people, have, it's, people are primed to distrust science. They're primed to believe that there's that the US government will engage in nefarious stuff with science, right? All baby boomers are completely primed for that because of the years of, of the CIA. I was just gonna and, add to that too. I mean, with, with black communities, I, you know, I can understand given the history of things like the Tuskegee syphilis study, why and, there's and, a mistrust. Yeah. And they talk, you know, but I feel like they, that's, you know, there's been some improvement on that through this like they have people black people have you know been stepping up and saying no let's you know this let's trust this again and there's been there's been improvement on that but they're you know yeah they're all these there are you know educated people like Naomi well I don't know actually she's a friend of mine I don't know what's going on with her she also believes in contrails and in you know deliberate like seed cloud seedings and stuff so I don't know what's going on with her um very much of an anti-science kind of perspective but uh, yeah, you do run into these folks who, you know, right? They're they've always been around. I mean, Marin County was their anti-vaxxers there. In a, you know, on the East Coast, you had the uh, Hasidic who are religious 
based um, de uh, deniers or, or vaccine hesitants. And then on the West Coast, you have people with PhDs or, you know, Marin County um, people with money and, you know, who just like like to eat natural organic food and who are suspicious of anything that isn't natural. And as one of my sources for the book said, who was a science information expert, she said, um, you know, people talk about chemicals and putting chemicals in their bodies because they don't understand like a banana is a chemical, like everything is a chemical, you know? And so, you know, but there is this distrust again, you go back to with the MRNA. I mean, it's a new platform. It's coming out of a, of a branch of science that has rapidly, rapidly advanced and it speaks a foreign language. I mean, I had to work with the um, to, to, to understand even what I was able to understand, I had to work daily with this um, PhD student at Stanford in the microbiology um, genetic department just to keep going like, I need genetics for dummies. You got to talk to me about this. It's a foreign language and you have to be able to translate that. And the great science writers are in desperate societies in great need of great science communicators to uh, get people past this 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 uneasiness with something that, you know, has genetic, has, has, you know, has to do with genetics and the genetic makeup of the virus. Um, but we have to get used to it because that's the next, um, you know, that's the next phase in, in the human species response to infectious disease and cancers. So the last thing I wanted to get into, I, I love that you're, last chapter is called the land of the free. And you talk about things like, um, you know, the people worried about the vaccine aren't necessarily worried about things like uh, surveillance capitalism, which are a threat uh, to our freedoms. But it, it's interesting to me when we talk about freedom in America, I feel like a lot of people think of freedom as what I can do rather than, you know, uh, for instance, I, I think we should have a freedom from, you know, being evicted in the middle of a pandemic, uh, you know, a freedom from fear, so to speak, as FDR would say, but I don't think people even conceive of freedom in that way. You know, maybe we should have a freedom not to live in absolute fear in the middle of a pandemic or, uh, you know, things of that nature. I was wondering if you could comment on how we conceptualize freedom in this country and maybe if we need to view freedom in a different way. Well, uh, funny you should ask, because I'm actually working on a book project and a magazine article that will come out very soon on the um, the gang that couldn't shoot straight, the militia in, in Michigan that plotted to kidnap the governor. Remember those guys? They're pre-16, but they were sort of precursors to it. Same kind of dream, same fantasy. They um, are they were motivated by individual freedoms that they felt had been restricted individual they had this fantasy of of freedom that um i think maybe a lot of them that their anger is rooted in their in these restrictions and the restrictions are things like well of course guns you damn well don't tell me when when i can buy a gun or not whether i have that a lot of them had um you know run-ins with cops for like they didn't pay for their car insurance or they had car you know, anything to do with cars and regulations, taxes, these little things, the little interactions with the bureaucracy, with the government, with, you know, the government telling them. And then when, when Whitmer and the government said, you have to stay home, that was the ultimate 
sign that again, because they inhabit these silos of information about their, their about, you know, uh, totalitarianism is coming, you know, I mean, you get into their, get into their world and you will hear that constantly, right. To tell socialist totalitarians are coming. So when they had the lockdown, that was this, this, you know, utter panic, utter panic among them. Like they're happening. It's happening. The thing that we've been warned about, the right has been warning us about this forever. And now we know it's happening. So that led me to ask, what do Americans, what do we think of when we sit? What do we mean when we talk about freedom? And I actually went out there during the 4th of July. I was right near all their, their many of them are bailed out. And they're, they're living in their houses, tethered and disarmed, the state charged ones, the feds, the feds have the federally charged ones in prison. And um, I went to like the 4th of July celebrations nearby, the fireworks going off. And I, I interviewed a lot of people. I videotaped them actually. And I said, what, how do you define freedom? What does independence mean to you? And almost every one of them, you, they couldn't answer it. They would say, well, it just means feeling free. And I think that's called a tautology. When you answer something with the same word, I'm not sure they, there, there's a thing, there's a word for that. And they were all, they couldn't express it, but we've been trained up in this country to idolize, fetishize, and believe in something that's called freedom, that's called liberty. And yet we don't really know what it is. And is it just, you know, is it, is it hedonism? Is it just being able to buy as many TVs as you want? Is it being able to buy as many guns as you want, even if you have a domestic violence charge against you? or any kind of criminal charge, because that's what they all had some criminal, many of them had criminal uh, histories, minor crime things, but that were gonna possibly get in the way of them buying more guns. So yeah, it's a good question. I, I think that, you know, again, freedom from surveillance, you know, freedom not to be vaccinated, freedom not to have to be where, uh, um, carry a, um, on your phone a proof of vaccination, as you said, and I've written about this, I, it just fascinates me. You're carrying a phone around. Your phone is your tracking device. You don't need Bill Gates. Bill Gates doesn't need to put microchips in you. And and I was just going to add to that. Not only that, but I mean, I, I like the analogy used in the book where, I mean, we live in a country where a lot of people have to choose between seeing a doctor or a dentist. And if they want to, you know, give their money to their kid uh, for the college fund. And I mean, to me, that's not I don't I don't think we're uh, really experiencing freedom when that's going on. But that's just my no. conceptualization of freedom. No. And listen, if you live, try to live in a country for a couple of weeks where that isn't an issue. Like I, I worked in Norway for four months where there isn't the issue where, where college is free and health care is almost free. Dental care was not 100 percent free. They thought they they thought it was expensive. It cost like 50 bucks to get your tooth fixed. Um, the level of anxiety in those countries compared with the level of anxiety that people have, live in here is not comparable. It's a completely different society. And it has to do with the anxiety level. Um so. You're absolutely right. I, you know, what's freedom? Freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose, as Janis Joplin sang. I think that's actually the American version of freedom right now. And, you know, I mean, I will, you know, I should qualify this by saying, I mean, have European friends living in France and places like that where they have to pay high taxes and they do get their free, free medical care. 
who feel like their societies are more stagnant than ours. I mean, there is a vibrancy that goes with this anxiety and this terror. <laughs> but um, as you can see, I think, and we, we all see that it's kind of spinning out of control here. And that if we don't get back to some kind of communitarian thinking, we're in trouble. Well, and I, last but not I want to say the last that we haven't addressed is the, the accountability for the pandemic, for the pandemic mishandling, not the pandemic, that wasn't anybody's fault, but the mishandled up, mishandling of it is, it, it might have been more um, of a front, um, it might have been more in, in front of uh, of the business at hand in the in in the Congress had one six not happened. One six completely sucks the gas away from in 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 any inspiration to investigate the mishandling of the pandemic because one six is a totally different. It's an emergency, fascist uprising, and they're still running around. So. I think they're not going to come to uh, any kind of accountability. Well, I've, I've kept you over the hour here, and I want to thank you for being so gracious with your time. Um, you know, just as an end note, someone recently uh, said to me, well, you know, this won't happen again, uh, a pandemic like this. These things are, you know, once in a lifetime incidents. Uh, do you think that's true? Or would you say, nah, that may not be the case? Well, uh, boy, I don't think that it's, you know, is what it was certainly was a once in a lifetime. I and mean, if you take Spanish flu to now, but we're so global, you know, we're global, we're so interconnected, right? That something erupts like this, you're going to have very quickly, it's spreading all over the planet if we're helpless before it. And a, and a lot of science suggests that this is going to happen more and more frequently as we get, you know, climate, these, these disasters that have to do with the climate um, changing and, 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 and humans proliferating still our populations and, and, and then the interconnectedness of everyone, the travel that we may have more frequent, but I hope, you know, it would be, I would prefer that it not be happening once every 10 years or something. I have, I have kids who are going to have to live, move on and, go forward in this world. And I certainly hope that's not the case. Thank you again, Nina Berli, for coming on Parallax Use to discuss your book, Virus, Vaccinations, the CDC, and the Hijacking of America's Response to the Pandemic. I really appreciate it. Please keep up the good work. Thank you for having me on. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Use. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Nina Burley, and that you'll check out her book, Virus, Vaccinations, the CDC, and the Hijacking of America's Response to the Pandemic. Very much worth reading. And uh, also, of course, if you can, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It is you the listener, along with a few of the select sponsors for this program that have kept Parallax Views going. So if you can support me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. There's a $1 tier, $5 tier, $10 tier, $15 tier, and a $100 tier. 
And of course, at the 10 and $15 tiers, you get a producer's credit shout out. So producer's credit shout outs to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, and Jeffrey. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, well, consider joining those listeners in supporting me at the $10 tier or above of my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time... You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically. Basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.